Introduction to a Confederate Girl's Diary. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Confederate Girl's Diary by Sarah Morgan Dawson. Introduction. It is perhaps due to a chance conversation held some seventeen years ago in New York that this diary of the Civil War was saved from destruction. A Philadelphian had been talking with my mother of North and South, and had alluded to the engagement between the Essex and the Arkansas on the Mississippi as a brilliant victory for the Federal Navy. My mother protested at once, said that she and her sister Miriam and several friends had been witnesses from the levee to the fact that the Confederates had fired and abandoned their own ship when the machinery broke down after two shots had been exchanged. The Federals, cautiously turning the point, had then captured but a smoking hulk. The Philadelphian gravely corrected her. History, it appeared, had consecrated, on the strength of an official report, the version more agreeable to northern pride. "'But I wrote a description of the whole just a few hours after it occurred,' my mother insisted. "'Early in the war I began to keep a diary and continued until the very end. I had to find some vent for my feelings, and I would not make an exhibition of myself by talking, as so many women did.' I have written while resting to recover breath in the midst of a stampede. I have even written with shells bursting over the house in which I sat, ready to flee, but waiting for my mother and sisters to finish their preparations. If that record still existed, it would be invaluable, said the Philadelphian. We Northerners are sincerely anxious to know what Southern women did and thought at that time, but the difficulty is to find authentic contemporaneous evidence." All that I for one have seen has been marred by improvement in the light of subsequent events. You may read my evidence as it was written from March 1862 until April 1865, my mother declared impulsively. At our home in Charleston, on her return, she unstitched with trembling hands a linen-bound parcel always kept in her tall cedar-lined wardrobe of curled walnut. On it was scratched in ink, to be burned unread after my death. It contained, she had once told me, a record of no interest save to her who had written it and lacked the courage to reread it, a narrative of days she had lived, of joys she had lost, of griefs accepted, of vain hopes cherished. From the linen, as the stitches were cut, fell five blank books of different sizes, Two of convenient dimensions might have been intended for diaries. The other three, somewhat unwieldy, were partly used ledgers from Judge P. H. Morgan's office. They were closely written in a clear, firm hand. The ink of poor quality had faded in many places to a pale brown, scarcely darker than the deep yellow to which time had burned the paper. The effort to read under such conditions, and the tears shed over the scenes evoked, might well have cost my mother her sight, but she toiled for many weeks, copying out the essential portions of the voluminous record for the benefit of the northerner who really wished to know. Her transcription finished, she sent it to Philadelphia. 
It was in due course returned, with cold regrets that the temptation to rearrange it had not been resisted. No Southerner at that time could possibly have had opinions so just, or foresight so clear, as those here attributed to a young girl. Explanation was not asked, nor justification allowed. The case, tried by one party alone, with evidence seen from one standpoint alone, had been judged without appeal. Keenly wounded and profoundly discouraged, my mother returned the diaries to their linen envelope and never saw them again. But my curiosity had been roused by these incidents. In the night thoughts of the records would haunt me, bringing ever the antebellum scent of the cedar-lined wardrobe. I pleaded for the preservation of the volumes, and succeeded at last, when, beneath the injunction that they should be burned, my mother wrote a deed of gift to me, with permission to make such use of them as I might think fitting. Reading those pages for myself of late, as I transcribed them in my turn, I confess to having blamed the Philadelphian but lightly for his skepticism. Here was a girl who, by her own admission, had known but ten months' schooling in her life, and had educated herself at home because of her yearning for knowledge. And yet she wrote in a style so pure, with a command of English so thorough, that rare are the pages where she had to stop for the alteration of so much as one word. The very haste of noting what had just occurred before more should come had disturbed the pure line of very few among these flowing sentences. There are certain uses of words to which the twentieth-century purist will take exception, but if he is familiar with Victorian literature he will know that these points have been solved within the last few decades, and not all solved to the satisfaction of everyone even now. But underlying this remarkable feat of style are a fairness of treatment and a balance of judgment incredible at such a period and in an author so young. On such a day we may note an entry denouncing the Federals before their arrival at Baton Rouge. Another page, and we see that the Federal officers are courteous and considerate. We hear regrets that denunciations should have been dictated by prejudice. Does Farragut bombard a town occupied by women and children, or does Butler threaten to arm Negroes against them? Be sure, then, that this Southern girl will not spare adjectives to condemn them. But do Southern women exaggerate in applying to all Federals the opprobrium deserved by some? Then those women will be criticized for forgetting the reserve imposed upon ladies." This girl knew then what history has since established, and what enlightened men and women on both sides of Mason and Dixon's line have since acknowledged, that in addition to the gentlemen in the federal ranks who always behaved as gentlemen should, there were others, both officers and privates, who had donned the federal uniform because of the opportunity for rapine which offered, and who were as unworthy of the stars and stripes as they would have been of the stars and bars. I can understand, therefore, that this record should meet with skepticism at the hands of theorists committed to an opinion, or of skimmers who read guessing the end of a sentence before they reach the middle. 
but the originals exist to-day and have been seen by others than myself, and I pledge myself here to the assertion that I have taken no liberties, have made no alterations, but have strictly adhered to my task of transcription, merely omitting here and there passages which deal with matters too personal to merit the interest of the public. Those who read seriously and with an unbiased mind will need no external guarantees of authenticity, however, for the style is of that spontaneous quality which no imitation could attain, and which attempted improvement could only mar. The very construction of the whole, for it does appear as a whole, is influenced by the circumstances which made the life of that tragic period. The author begins with an airy appeal to Madame Idleness in order to forget. Then the war seemed a sacred duty, an heroic endeavor, an inevitable trial, according as Southerners chose to take it. But the prevailing opinion was that the solution would come in victory for Southern arms, whether by their own unaided might or with the support of English intervention. The seat of war was far removed, and but for the absence of dear ones at the front and anxiety about them, southern women would have been little disturbed in their routine of household duties. But presently the roar of cannon draws near, actual danger is experienced in some cases, suffering and privation must be accepted in all. Thenceforth the women are part of the war, there may be interludes of plantation life momentarily secure from bullets and from oppression, yet the cloud is felt hanging ever lower and blacker. Gradually the writer's gay spirit fails, an injury to her spine, for which adequate medical care cannot be found in the Confederacy, and the condition of her mother, all but starving at Clinton, drive these southern women to the protection of a Union relative in New Orleans. The hated eagle oath must be taken. The beloved Confederacy must be renounced, at least in words. Entries in the diary become briefer and briefer, yet are sustained unto the bitter end, when the deaths of two brothers and the crash of the lost cause are told with the tragic reserve of a broken heart. I have alluded to passages omitted because too personal. That the clearness of the narrative may not suffer, I hope to be pardoned for explaining briefly here the position of Sarah Morgan's family at the outbreak of the Civil War. Her father, Judge Thomas Gibbs Morgan, had been collector of the Port of New Orleans, and in 1861 was judge of the district court of the parish of Baton Rouge. In complete sympathy with Southern rights, he disapproved of secession as a movement fomented by hotheads on both sides, but he declared for it when his state so decided. He died at his home in Baton Rouge in November 1861, before the arrival of Farragut's fleet. Judge Thomas Gibbs Morgan's eldest son, Philip Hickey Morgan, was also a judge of the Second District Court of the Parish of Orleans. Judge P. H. Morgan, alluded to as brother and his wife as sister throughout the diary, disapproved of secession like his father, but did not stand by his state. 
He declared himself for the Union, and remained in New Orleans when the Federals took possession, but refused to bear arms against his brothers and friends. His position enabled him to render signal services to many Confederate prisoners suffering under Butler's rule and it was a conversation of his with President Hayes when he told the full unprejudiced truth about the dual government and the popular sentiment of Louisiana, which put an end to reconstruction there by the Washington government's recognition of General Francis T. Nichols, elected governor by the people, instead of Packard, declared governor by the Republican Returning Board of the State. Judge P. H. Morgan had proved his disinterestedness in his report to the President, for the new Democratic regime meant his own resignation from the post of Associate Justice of the Supreme Court of Louisiana, which he held under the Republicans. He applied then to himself a piece of advice which he later was to give a young relative mentioned in the pages of this diary— Always remember that it is best to be in accord with the sentiments of the vast majority of the people in your state. They are more apt to be right on public questions of the day than the individual citizen. If Judge Thomas Gibbs Morgan's eldest son stayed within the Union lines because he would not sanction secession, his eldest daughter, Lavinia, was on the Federal side also, married to Colonel Richard Coulter Drum, then stationed in California, and destined to become, in days of peace, adjutant-general under President Cleveland's first administration. Though spared the necessity of fighting against his wife's brothers, Colonel Drum was largely instrumental in checking the secession movement in California, which probably would have assured the success of the South. In the early days of secession agitation, another son of Judge T.G. Morgan, Henry, had died in a duel over a futile quarrel which busybodies had envenomed. The three remaining sons had gone off to the war. Thomas Gibbs Morgan, Jr., married to Lydia, daughter of General A.G. Carter and a cousin of Mrs. Jefferson Davis, was captain in the 7th Louisiana Regiment, serving under Stonewall Jackson. George Mather Morgan, unmarried, was a captain in the 1st Louisiana, also with Jackson in Virginia. The youngest, James Morris Morgan, had resigned from Annapolis, where he was a cadet, and hurried back to enlist in the Confederate Navy. At the family home in Baton Rouge, only women and children remained. There was Judge Morgan's widow, Sarah Fowler Morgan, a married daughter, Eliza, or Lily, with her five children, and two unmarried daughters, Miriam and Sarah. Lily's husband, J. Charles Lanoux, came and went. Unable to abandon his large family without protector or resources, he had not joined the regular army, but took a part in battles near whatever place of refuge he had found for those dependent on him. We note, for instance, that he helped in the Confederate attack on Baton Rouge, together with General Carter, whose age had prevented him from taking regular service. A word more as to the author of this diary, and I have finished. The war over, Sarah Morgan knitted together the threads of her torn life and faced her present in preparation for whatever the future might hold. In South Carolina, under Reconstruction, she met a young Englishman, Captain Francis Warrington Dawson, 
who had left his home in London to fight for a cause where his chivalrous nature saw right threatened by might, in the Confederate Navy under Commodore Pegram, in the Army of Northern Virginia under Longstreet, at the close of the war he was chief ordnance officer to General Fitzhugh Lee. But although the force of arms, of men, of money, of mechanical resources, of international support, had decided against the Confederacy, he refused to acknowledge permanent defeat for Southern ideals, and so cast his lot with those beside whom he had fought. His ambition was to help his adopted country in reconquering through journalism and sound politics that which seemed lost through war. What he accomplished in South Carolina is a matter of public record today. The part played in this work by Sarah Morgan as his wife is known to all who approached them during their fifteen years of a married life across which no shadow ever fell. Sarah Morgan Dawson was destined to outlive not only her husband, but all save three of her eight brothers and sisters, and most of the relatives and friends mentioned in the pages which follow was destined to endure deep affliction once more, and to renounce a second home dearer than that first whose wreck she recorded during the war. Yet never did her faith, her courage, her steadfastness fail her. Never did the light of an almost childlike trust in God and in mankind fade from her clear blue eyes." the sarah morgan who as a girl could stifle her sobs as she forced herself to laugh or to sing was the mother i knew in later years i love most to remember her in the broad tree-shaded avenues of versailles where dreaming of a distant tragic past she found ever new strength to meet the present death claimed her not far from there in paris at a moment when her daughter in america her son in Africa, were powerless to reach her. But souls like unto hers leave their mark in passing through the world, and though in a foreign land, separated from all who had been dear to her, she received from two friends such devotion as few women deserve in life, and such as few other women are capable of giving. She had done more than live and love. She had endured while endurance was demanded, and released from the house of bondage, she had, without trace of bitterness in her heart, forgiven those who had caused her martyrdom. Warrington Dawson, Versailles, France, July, 1913 End of Introduction <laughs>